This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. Book Mama Linda Sievertson here, and I have a question for you. Anyone out there ever feel addicted to sugar? This is not a commercial. After listening to our guest today, best-selling author Janine Roth, you just might feel that you have a food angel. Imagine that you feel out of control when it comes to the sweet stuff, only to suddenly not crave sugar at all. Temptations to stuff yourself vanish. How does that happen? Sound impossible? What if it isn't? Or imagine that you only ever wanted to be a writer. That's it. No other career choice excites you. How do you make that happen? And how do you find the time? Do you steal it like a thief or schedule it sanely? Or are there other, more magical ways? These are some of the very cool things Martha Beck and I talk with Janine about today. Yes, Martha is back in the guest co-host chair, and I am loving putting these two master writers and teachers together. Janine is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Women, Food, and God, When Food is Love, and Lost and Found, about how she had all of her money squandered away by Bernie Madoff. She's also written six other books. One of Janine's superpowers for decades is helping people break free from emotional eating at her weight, food, and even money seminars. She's teaching a free video masterclass for buyers of her new book, This Messy, Magnificent Life, published by Scribner. And I'll tell you how to access that course at the close. And speaking of magic, I will ask Martha to tell us about her upcoming live and online writing courses with the author of Big Magic herself, Elizabeth Gilbert. In other words... Help, dear listeners, is on the way. I want to share a wonderful surprise I found in the front of Janine's new book, which comes from several of our past guests here on the podcast, our beautiful tribe mates. Glennon Doyle writes that Roth's early work pulled her sister out of the abyss of eating disorders. In the book's foreword by Anne Lamont, she says that Janine's work will blow you away. Danny Shapiro writes about Janine's secret sauce and calls her a treasure. Feeling left out? I kind of was. I'd never read Janine's work before, believing that I didn't really need it. Until a recent appearance with Oprah on Super Soul Sunday. I was standing with one hand holding the clicker and the other hand inside of a box of cookies. Yeah. Oh, has this woman and her witchy grounded ways helped me alter those habits, as you will hear. Martha and Janine are big fans of each other's books, and yet have never met before now. So, once again, I am in the fortunate position of playing Bookie Cupid, which I've got to say, I am totally digging, like way more than ice cream. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Martha, dude, I love it when you're on my show. I also love it when I'm on your show. (laughs) Okay, I can't wait for Friday, April 6th. Scottsdale, I've been so looking forward to seeing you and Liz Gilbert at your True Magic Weekend Workshop. Do you still have spots open in case anyone listening to this is feeling especially spontaneous and wants to come play with us? I think there's still a few slots open, so the people okay. are rush to do it. And if you miss it, Liz and I are also working together on this passion project. It's an online course called Write Into Light, and it's about the way we use writing to solve our personal problems. It's very cool, change your life kind of event, and we've worked really hard on it. We're very excited about it. And you can oh, sign up yeah. for that. Yeah, I think the registration closes in the, like the second week of April, like April 10th or something. I don't know. I'm not so good at logistics. 
So the one in Scottsdale that I'm going to is True Magic, and that's the 6th and the 7th. And then Right Into Light is an online course that you and Liz Gilbert did last season. And I had so many friends do it who said it was the best writing course they had ever taken. My mentor, Betsy Rappaport, one of our besties, our mutual bestie, is also involved in helping you behind the scenes. She's our ringer. She's one of our people, Betsy Rappaport, who was my first editor at Random House. And now I think she's worked with you on a couple of books, yeah? Oh, yeah. She's my freelance editor. I couldn't even imagine putting a book out into the world without having her give it to AOK because she she, is phenomenal. She is working with us on Ryan's Light. We have a string of ringers that you would not believe. It's going to be, it's Light. And And you don't need to be a writer. It's just super, it's actually the real magic. Like J.K. Rowling yeah. says, the real magic is writing. It is. So, yeah, it is. that's going to be it is. super awesome. Okay, so today's yeah. guest, Janine Ross, she's such a legend. Ten books. One of the first people ever to link compulsive eating and perpetual dieting with deeply personal and spiritual issues that go way beyond food and weight and body image and all that. And as someone who's had an intimate history with eating issues and who's authored The Joy Diet, I thought the two of you would be an unbelievable pairing. Oh, yeah. Who among us has not had a wild compulsion (laughs) about food in one way or another? And I love the way Janine gets straight to the heart of the matter. And it's kind of ballsy to go out and say, yo, spirituality, Um, and not be lumped in to an airy-fairy category. And she nails it. And as we'll talk about, she is an incredible wordsmith. I'm always underlining the whole book is just molested. I do that with you. I do that with most of my guests because I only bring on the best. But, oh, Lord, it's well, just so, so well, stunning. Speaking of bringing on, why don't we bring her on? Janine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you there? Hi. Hi, you two. We're so glad to have you. You're in a hotel room in Los Angeles on your book tour. Is that right? I am, mm. yes. Down it's the a gorgeous road. day here. Beautiful. I know we've had rain. Martha, did you have rain at the ranch as well, I hope? We had rain. We had torrential fire hose rain after so much nothing. And it's, uh, yeah, it's gorgeous here. Mm. Well, ladies, you both are writers, writers. You're known for the beauty of your prose. Talent like yours takes years of sitting alone to write and perfect. And I think every writer listening today wrestles with stealing time. An hour here, 30 minutes there, a few minutes in between here and there. And when we're not writing, we're eyeing the clock. I'm thinking about in my history, I used to bring chapters I was working on to my son's little league practices. So I was not very stealth. But can the two of you give us an instance of where you had to get sneaky at the start of your career versus maybe how your time thievery, as it were, has morphed to hopefully a more sane schedule these days? Janine, are you a time thief? No, I'm actually not. <laughs> uh, even from the very beginning, when I started, when I realized I actually wanted to write more than I wanted to do anything else, I had yeah. already applied for a graduate school, gotten accepted, and then decided, ah, what the hell. The thing I've always wanted to do is take a writing class. I'd wanted to do that since I'd been in fifth grade or wanted to write. And so I did. I took a writing class, and within about, oh, the first two weeks, I realized I didn't want to do anything else for the rest of my life but write, and it (laughs) didn't matter if I had to make. My job then was being a nanny, 
in somebody's house, living in their basement, and also making avocado and cheese sandwiches every day at a health food store. And I thought, okay, I'll do this for the rest of my life if I have to write. So in terms of writing then, it was whenever I wasn't working. And I wrote, I'm not a night writer. Nighttime comes and the lights go out in my brain, in my body. It doesn't matter what I say or what I do. It just doesn't happen in the night. So it happens during the day. And if I have a really busy day, then I either don't write that day or I'm up so early in the morning and I love those morning hours before anybody else gets up that I write then. So what hours are you talking? Is it like 4, 5 a.m.? No, I'd say 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. if I'm doing something else that day. If I'm not and if it's a writing day for me, then I'll write starting at about 9.30 or 10 and go from 10 to 2 or 10 to 3. So what you're saying is it's pretty sane, like your food habits now. It's sane. (laughs) Damn it. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's very sane because I don't like living in that hyper-vigilant, sympathetic nervous system mode, which is the reason I didn't write this last book on a deadline or with a contract. I wanted to write when I wanted to write it and not be under that kind of anxiety-producing deadline. So yeah, it took me six know. years to write this book because of that. Mm. Martha, what about you? Were you ever a time thief? <laughs> oh, I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I started writing. It's weird for me. I have this clock inside me. I'm very distractible. But like in school, when it was time to get started on something, something like a clock would turn on inside me. And I know I have to do that now. And I had never, ever thought of being a writer. And I wanted to write a memoir about my experience with my son who was prenatally diagnosed with Down syndrome and a clock turned on inside me and said, write that book now. And at the time I had three children under five. I was finishing my doctorate at Harvard while teaching as an assistant (laughs) professor. And I had severe fibromyalgia that made it impossible for me to use my hands most of the time. So it was incredibly slow and laborious. And I think I probably lost literal decades of sleep because I pulled all nighters <laughs> constantly. It wasn't a healthy thing. I wrote the last hundred pages of that book in one sitting, seventy two hours sitting. <laughs> what? And, oh god. Yeah, it's weird. I can't when the clock goes on, there's this yeah. weird compulsion and my hands would unfreeze when I was working on that book, but not when I was working on my dissertation. It was very, very strange. I've always okay. bizarre. Oh. Everything. Okay, so back to this kind of sneakiness. I'm imagining, Janine, you have this wonderful husband, Matt. Let's say you're working on a book and you and Matt are, you've got the weekend. You're just hanging out. You don't really have any plans. Maybe he's watching some sports or something. Don't you just sit there and go, okay, okay, I got to get. Did you ever wrestle with wanting to make Matt feel that he's getting your attention? But at the same time, sneaking off a little bit, you never deal with that, huh? (laughs) Well, that's a very big question you're asking, Linda. That goes (laughs) into very, you know, not just writing, but if I am feeling utterly passionate about what I'm doing, whether it's writing or something else, then it becomes huge and 
that's all I want to do. So then it becomes a challenge for me to balance writing and or whatever else that is. And it's usually writing. I mean, I adore teaching, but it's a different thing Mm -hmm. for me because I teach long retreats and weekends. And so those are very structured and time structured. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's different. With writing, it continues when I stop writing. I'm still writing. Whether exactly. no matter what I'm doing. So there's a feeling of can't wait to get back to it. But then I remember what Hemingway said that at the end of every single day in which he stopped writing, he always left it with mm-hmm. knowing where he was going to go the next day and really wanting to get back to it the next day. Yeah. So I yeah. will try to resist the temptation of doing it all that day. Because I know that starting any day of writing is always a little difficult for me. It's just starting a new chapter is hard. Starting a new book is really hard. And even Mm -hmm. going in between the chapter, it takes me a little while to get into it. So it's good for me to stop the day before with this thrill of can't wait to get back into it. Mm. Does that echo your experience, Martha? Yeah, when it's time to get into it, when I'm really, I, it's so interesting that even though it's very, very mesmerizing and addictive to be in it, it's also hard yeah. to push past any kind of sense of finishing. So I try never to ever finish a day's work at the end of the chapter because then I, I wow, finishing and then I'll go off and like just eat nachos for six days. And not get back to it. But if I write to the second page of the new chapter, then it's like, okay, it's in process. It's weird. You have to play all these psychological tricks. At least I have to play all these psychological tricks on myself to keep myself doing it. Okay. Now, Martha, when you were guest testing with me for Glennon Doyle's interview, you Mm. talked about how in your last book, Diana herself, your protagonist has to be outside of culture. She's lost in a forest to find out who she really is. how in your own life you had to go to the forest, which is where you live now, away from the vibrations of people and to know, really to tap into your telepathy. Looking back, was this a version of stealing time? Because I'm thinking about we all have to create healthy boundaries for ourselves as a way of protecting our time. Mm. And being out in the forest away from culture and away from people, has that helped you with healthy writing and creative boundaries? I think you bet an oxymoron there because you're saying to be healthy is to steal. I don't think stealing is healthy. I think that everything except our true nature is stealing our time. I steal time when I show up at some appointment that I don't have to be at. I steal time when I'm in a place I don't want to be. The only time I'm not stealing time is when I'm absolutely in accord with my true nature. Mm. And everything else is stealing and the book I'm writing now is called The Integrity Cleanse, and I don't believe in stealing. So I would be stealing yeah. time if I didn't write when I felt like writing. So there. Ha, ha. <gasps> Bravo. Mm-hmm. Everything else is stealing. Okay, so this brings up another crucial writerly topic, and that's habits. So nothing squanders our time faster than a bad habit, and it's no secret that drinking a bottle of wine, for instance, with dinner or eating a half a pie for dessert, that's going to sap our energy for more than just writing. So 
Janine, because so much of your work and your new book deals with our relationship to eating, I want to spend real time on that in a minute. But before we do, I would like to start with habits not related to food. So I guess my question would be, what sleep or exercise or scheduling habits do you depend on to support your writing? And which ones maybe still do you wrestle with? Janine. Well, I don't actually think I depend on any of those things to support my writing because I could and will write with not enough sleep. And, of course, there is a chapter in the book called Snorkeling in the Night Sky about sleeplessness itself. Sleep has definitely been a challenge for me my entire life, and I have learned to be in relationship to it rather than fight it or be afraid of it anymore. But I can write for a little while when I'm really tired. Not that well and only in the morning because at some point my brain stops functioning. And that's (laughs) when I won't write. I just won't write then because I know that I'm sort of writing on fumes and it's not my best time and I'll just shut it down and do something else. In terms of exercise, I love being outside. I do that first thing in the morning after I'm done just sitting and being with myself. I don't even call it meditating anymore. That's probably the first half hour, 45 minutes when I wake up. And then it's just outside. Just get outside. Mm. Smell the air. Be in nature. Feel the wind. Even when it's raining, I'll take a walk with my dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter. I just want to be out there, feeling the trees mm. and smelling the air. And I would say that feeds my writing. I don't think yeah. I depend on that. I don't think my writing depends on that. I think my well-being, just being able to be and live in nature is central for me. Mm. Hmm. Martha, what about you? Sleep or exercise or nature habits that support you? Actually, whatever I get involved with, I become fixated on. So for me, I have to regularly read. If I don't read, I don't write. If I'm outside, I'm more likely to want to paint, for example, or draw. Um, I do go outside every day, but I call it filling the well. Whatever medium I want to work in, I have to look at those things. And I have this weird mimic response where if I (laughs) see something, I want to create something visual. If I read something, I want to create something written. And I just have a stack of books that reliably inspire me. And I have little rituals in the morning where I read. I pick some of them out and then I read them over a cup of tea. And I do also meditate before that. But to get to writing, yeah, got to read. I love that answer. So I want to talk about all three of us are writers who teach. And I don't know about the two of you, but I started out coaching to make money, to support my art with no idea that it would become so addictive and so nurturing and make me feel so connected and in love with people. And so much so that sometimes I forget I'm a writer. Sometimes I enjoy it so much that I could just spend the rest of my life doing it. But I've had to scale my retreat business back so that I can finish some of these books. And I know a lot of our listeners give lectures and workshops and they teach and coach. And I imagine they would love to know how the two of you balance your writing and your teaching time. I also love teaching and have created an extensive support network for the students who come to retreats where I'm working with them 
regularly. And also I have a couple of people on my teaching team who work with them regularly. Yeah. In the moment with teaching, it feels sort of like writing to me because I no longer plan extensively or in fact, I hardly plan at all. I just yeah. show up in the room and what I love about writing is also what I love about teaching. I mean, they're very different, of course, but I love it that who I call myself disappears and what mm. shows up happens through me, not as me. And that wow. happens with writing. Yeah. You know, when I write, of course, it's quite solitary. And so there's a huge difference between engaging with people when I'm teaching. And that's what I love doing when I'm teaching is engaging with people. I don't love mm -hmm. so much being just a sage on a stage speaker at oh, yeah. a conference without engaging with somebody actually on stage and then with the audience because I love that interaction. And with writing, it's just a solitary thing. So, But in both of those, I find that I disappear, that something comes through me, which I think most writers feel and probably many teachers feel. I don't think I'm unusual here at all. That's the... Yeah enjoyable part. That's the thrill for me is being used like that. Just being used as the vehicle for that is just thrilling. I agree. Yeah. I think we thought anybody, I always used to think of Hitler had a good moment where I wanted to like help a kitten that the force would have flowed through that and used him to help the kitten. Anytime you put yourself in service of other people, it flows through you. And that is that is a cheap high, ladies, and it's worth <laughs> all the all-nighters I've ever done. But also, I there's so much written material out there, and I really love this sort of interim thing of using the internet and having more and more interactive things where I'm using different media. So you don't just have to stand up in front of people. You don't just have to be alone writing. There's this communal thing that you can get going when you interact with people on the internet, this podcast being one of them. And I think mm. it's sensational. I think it's a whole new art form, a whole new medium. That's why I, instead of writing a book, I decided to create a course on writing right now because it's a different medium. And it's, it's really interesting to turn on a Facebook Live or a video recorder and have the same thing flow through. It's really, it's just, you can reliably expect it if you put yourself in the service of others, no matter what the medium. And that's the I know. absolutely. I totally agree. I'm working on a time debt book with my co-author, Bronwyn Sanglam Benny, and we are having so much fun, but it's a long distance between the beginning of a book and it's showing up in the bookstores. So the other day we were getting so excited about the materials. She was off at a conference, I think it was with Oracle and working with their corporate executives and they were all excited about time debt. And she called me up, she goes, Linda, let's just do a course and start teaching it right now. So we're doing it. We're going to launch it in a couple of weeks because we're just too excited right. to wait 18 months for a book. So I agree with you, that community feeling and the connection that you get from strangers that become friends within, it feels like minutes is so fulfilling. And I never expected it. I never expected to like this online stuff as much as I do. Yeah. I am so curious. Do you guys spend time writing about something in a book and then workshopping it? Or do you workshop material first and then write about it in books? 
I think of things, I immediately start applying them to myself. Then I apply them to everyone who comes with it, like the FedEx guy, anyone. And then I write them. <laughs> you accost and people was, on the street? Yeah, it's always like, oh, I thought of something. Yeah, it's like a way of life. What about you, Janine? Yeah, I think that it starts bubbling up somehow. It just appears. And usually, I, you know, I don't think there's an either or. I'll be. Like, Women, Food, and God came out of what I'd been teaching at the retreats for a while. And this book came a different way, with just me waking up in the morning with something happening. And then, like you, Martha, just hearing something and wondering how it applied to me or somebody else, and then just sitting with it and asking myself questions about it or asking a lot of people about it. When we for instance, lost our money in 2008, I went around asking everybody I met at grocery stores about their relationship with money. It didn't matter because I became completely fascinated with that Mm -hmm. and then just had no shame. I would just speak to anybody about it. And it's great. The no shame part is important. So Uh to me... You've written that you always wanted to be a writer. This was not my experience. It just hit me in my 20s. I was like, what? I'm writing? I want to write. <laughs> and I had this burning, like, I knew what I wanted to write about. But I've always wondered with people who always knew that they wanted to be a writer, how did they come up? Well, how did you come up with your first book idea? It's so hard to commit the length of time to a book. And I know so many wannabe authors who go from topic to topic wondering if this is right, that is right. What happened right. for you? Good question. You know, I would say I knew I loved writing. I probably misspoke before if I said I knew I always wanted to be a writer. I knew I always loved writing, but I didn't think it was possible for me mm-hmm. to be a, quote, okay. writer. That felt like it was mm-hmm. in a different category. It wasn't until I took that writing class with a woman named Ellen Bath, who's now a poet, and wrote a book, I think, in 1986 or seven called The Courage to Heal about surviving child sexual abuse. But when I took the class with her called Writing About Our Lives, I just wanted to, it was a lark. It was, I had six months before I went to graduate school. And so what did I want to do? Oh, okay, I'll just write. And when I saw what she was doing, which is that she was teaching weekly classes about writing, and she had written an anthology about poetry called No More Masks. I decided I was going to model my life exactly on hers, exactly Mm. on hers. And so after a year of working with her, I decided to start weekly groups about something that I knew about because I wasn't going to teach about writing or I wasn't going to write a book about poetry, but I certainly by that time knew about the relationship with food and the obsession with food. So I did that. I put an ad in the local paper. I charged a dollar a night for anybody who (laughs) wanted to come to that. And then I decided that like Ellen, and I remember going for a walk with her out in the country, which is where she lived, and telling her about my idea from Feeding the Hungry Heart, my first book, which was an mm. anthology just like she did as an anthology. Mm. And so she was my model. I was like a duck imprinting on the mother duck. 
and just becoming <laughs> and doing whatever Ellen did. And so, <laughs> so I knew what to write about because I knew that that's what I knew about. And because Ellen had done what she knew about, I did what I knew about. Oh, I love the answer is. is that the book that was rejected by something like 25 publishers? It was. It was the book that oh. was rejected by 25 oh, publishers. And did yeah. you have an agent sending it out? Well, I didn't have an agent. I was following the instructions in the writer's market about how to mm. write a book proposal. I had a friend <laughs> who was helping me. Lucy Diggs is her name. And we sent it out. And we got all those rejections. And then one person, Peg Parkinson at Bob's Merrill, said she'd love to see it. And, of course, I had bluffed and said that I had an entire book when really I didn't. Uh, oh, my I gosh. just had a lot. I had a lot of people submission. And because mm. my family lives in New York, I was going to New York and talked my way in to see her, Peg, for about 15 minutes. And we just fell in love with each other. And she started calling me and asking me where my book was probably every week or so after that. And I couldn't stand it. I was actually saying it's coming, it's coming. But in the meantime, I was paralyzed from the pressure and the fear of actually being a writer. And so finally I called mm. her and said, I've been lying to you this whole time. Please forgive me. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> I don't, if I ever become a writer, sorry, goodbye. And she said... I believe in you. Here's my home phone number. Call me anytime. And that was, she was an angel. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so your fourth book on the New York Times bestseller list, you said that you received a check for $106,000 and it felt like getting a paper bag filled with Monopoly money. How did that <laughs> first experience of having it be so hard, how did that inform how you experienced the success and money later? Well, first of all, I was just thinking about this this morning, actually, about all the people who helped and supported me without mm -hmm. whom I would not have been yeah. able to do or be doing what I'm doing now. So I don't really take it for granted. I feel perpetually like a student and that I'm always learning about writing and Really, because I love words and I love the craft of writing, I just find it, it just transports me, good writing. And so yeah. I never really define myself as a good writer, but always learning how to write and learning new words and just like that. So I think that first experience was fabulous, but also incredibly humbling because mm -hmm. I will never forget walking into a bookstore before I had a book published, feeling the distance between having a book on a shelf and yeah. me was like being on another planet. So <laughs> I yeah. feel just dedicated to talking about that and letting people know that and bridging the gap between those dreams and now. And I feel like if it's possible for one person, it's possible yeah. for anybody. And so if it's possible for me, and I didn't give up on it, I think that's the thing. I think Anna East Nin said that a long time ago, that it was one quarter talent and three quarter persistence. 
And I think that's what it's been. It's a lot of persistence and love, just love, love of words, love of craft. Mm -hmm. So, Janine, I know there are a million people out there who are like, I want this to be true for me, and they're waiting for the paper bag full of money. And they tend to think, New York Times bestseller list, you have a private jet that you lend to your friends because you're too busy riding your thoroughbreds or whatever. But it's actually not really. <laughs> well, like you that. know what? I busted that myth after we lost <laughs> every cent of our money. So that myth got well, busted. That's, that's what I was going to ask you about in the book Lost and Found. You talk about losing all your money with Bernie Madoff. Ponzi scheme, and then you had somebody embezzled from you, and then you've had some really rough goes financially. And people, I think, have this dichotomy between I'm a poor, struggling artist, but when I make it, when this happens, when I get an agent, when I get a publisher, when I publish my first book, when I get on the bestseller list, all my money issues will be gone. And (laughs) it's related to people's feelings about food. It's related to people's feelings about consumption and enough. And that's what I love about your latest book is the emphasis on the not-enoughness of the culture. So if people are out there listening to this and they're artists, what's your perspective on that whole thing of having money issues? But they'll be solved by my success. I just have to find Ellen Bass and follow her around. I think that's a dynamic in the human psyche of postponing our lives. If only I had, then I would be happy. If only I Uh had the job, the money, the relationship. If I only lived in the perfect place. If I only had that, then I would be happy. You know, that money loss taught me something that I would never, ever exchange. If I had a choice, and I knew it was teaching me that two months after we lost our money, and I knew then that if somebody came to me and said, you could turn back the clock and get back you and your husband's 30 years of life savings, would you? My answer would have been no. I will not Mm. turn back the clock. what, What I saw was that I had been living before we lost our money And without realizing it, in this low-level anxiety place about not just about possible loss, but about not enough, that there was a sense that I wasn't enough, that we didn't have enough, that what if this, what if I got cancer and I had to get some kind of esoteric treatment and fly to Germany and we wouldn't have (laughs) enough money for that, and on and on and on, and then we lost it all. One phone call, it was gone. And after I sort of peeled myself off from the shock and I would say shame, first of all, of having invested everything in one place, after I realized I had so many good friends, two in particular, who said to me in one form or another, nothing of any value has been lost. And I wanted to smack them, truthfully. I was like, For oh, sure. come on. <laughs> and, you know, seriously. How can mm. you say that? And then I realized that they were right, that if all those years of meditating and all those years of practice meant anything at all, then this is where the rubber met the road. And how the rubber did meet the road, and this is the part I wouldn't trade for anything, 
is that I realized that it was my mind going off the cliffs. It was the story. Mm. It was the difference between the situation and the stories I was telling myself about the situation so that we'd lost our money. But I started focusing on what I hadn't lost every day. And I would not let my mind start in on the fear, the shame, the terror, the not enough stories, because I couldn't have made it through the night if it did. And because of that vigilance, of bringing my mind back every single time it wandered, I started feeling happier than I had been in years. I heard you and did that I, Oprah. That was amazing. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it myself. So I And I so really soon thought, after you lost everything. Yes. Because I saw it was about my stories about losing everything, which even before we had lost everything, I had been entrancing myself into a semi-anxious state daily anyway. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. that I realized I was living like that and that it didn't matter. And I want to put a caveat on this and say, of course, it matters whether you have a roof over your head, whether you have enough to eat. The basic survival needs, not having those, really matter. After that, all the experts on happiness tell us it's lanyap, and that's a Creole word. I went to school in New Orleans for meaning (laughs) extra. It's just extra because then what matters is the stories you tell yourself. And I was entrancing myself. I would say I lived in a trance of discontent no matter Mm. what I had on the outside. So going back to your question, Martha, that if only I had, then I would be happy. And when you have what you think you want that's going to make you happy, the issue is you still have your same mind. And unless you have learned how to be with that in a different (laughs) way, you will be as unhappy as you were before you got what you think you needed to get in order to be happy. And then you always yeah. want another. Then it, well, obviously, this made me, I thought it, I got it. It made me miserable instead of happy. Clearly, the answer is more. <laughs> exactly. Right? That's how I was with Harvard degrees. I kept thinking if I got a degree from Harvard, I would feel better. And it just, I never felt better, so I just kept getting them. And then I had my son with Down syndrome, and it was kind of the same thing. If I looked at him with the mind I had, his life was a tragedy. And if I looked at human life in a completely different way, as this experience where the primary objective was to experience the presence of other beings, of this material realm and everything, then I could handle raising my son. And because of that, I had to shepherd my mind back every time. And that same thing. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Right. Because then it just changes it. Then you're like, you know, the Tibetans say, be like a child, astonished at everything. And so then it's looking with new eyes. And it's yeah, not looking yeah. in that glazy, daisy mind that is so short, knows everything, that all its interpretations are laid all over everything, and then nothing is new. Nothing is astonishing. You've seen it all before. Right. Janine, you've helped I- me. 
so much through this book and your work has really been a recent godsend to me. I have always had a fast metabolism. I've always loved to exercise. I've been pretty obsessive about eating clean my whole life. But my dog died. I had this soulmate poodle for 12 years and she died unexpectedly. She was sick all during the holidays, which was total comfort food binge time because of it. And then she died in January. So up until I got your book from your publicist, I was eating sugar every day and half a box of Girl Scout cookies, no problem. And because I exercise and I've always taken pretty good care of myself, it didn't appear to be doing too much damage. However, I wasn't feeling good about it. And I was waking up like with the sweats and I gained 10 pounds. It Again, not a big deal, but couldn't really fit in my clothes. And But more importantly, I started getting sad. And I honestly thought, I don't know if I'll ever get out of this. Because now I've got bad habits going. They're connected to serious grief. I got a couple of puppies, which helped a lot. And yet, the food thing wasn't changing. It just seemed to be getting worse. So I get your book. And I'm like, God, I should really, really read women's food and God, because I never read that because I never felt like I needed it. But I'm like, I think I need that one too. So I started going through all of your work and, oh Lord, I don't know that anything has ever been written on food and addiction so beautifully explained as what you've done. And since then, I haven't eaten anything unless I'm hungry. I now Mm. stop eating before I'm full. I do not eat while I'm Mm. watching television. I don't eat while I'm distracted. Mm. I notice when I want to like grab something and it's always when I'm uncomfortable with somebody or something and I sit with that discomfort, like you say, and I feel the emotion like you say, and it doesn't kill me and it's not a monster, just like you promised. And I feel exactly how, when you wrote this passage, it just hit me. This is exactly how I feel. You say, once you glimpse the possibility of freedom, Taste the ease of soaring. You cannot go back. Once you know, you can't unknow. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I can't even, I can't even say it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot to me. And I know what it's like to lose a beloved four-legged being (laughs) and the grief of that and to feel that grief. And I'm just happy that words and my books just somehow ease that for you. That's beautiful. Huge. Huge. Mm. And the weight just mm-hmm. fell off. Just, yeah, mm-hmm. it's easy. It's mm. just freeing. It's freeing mm. not to be binging on Girl Scout cookies and not to miss them. Yeah. You know, that passage, and I've actually been focusing a lot more with people. When I work with people's relationship with food now, I have been focusing more on exactly that. That for a while, and particularly for me who had such an eating shtick for so long and was actually obsessed with sugar and just Mm. felt like sugar was the treat for me, I was so focused on not depriving myself and on not forcing and punishing and fearing myself. And that's how my early work got started because I had spent so many years depriving, shaming, punishing, being frightened of my hungers and figuring out how I could eat exactly what I wanted to eat without shame. And those were my early books and my early work with food. Recently, and I talk a little bit about this in This Messy Magnificent Life, I have been focusing myself 
really with my own relationship with food and then the people that I work with about that, about what are you doing this for? That life force, that aliveness, what increases your life force, your presence, your energy, your vitality, your radiance, and what depresses it? And to just Mm -hmm. tell the truth about that and see, Mm -hmm. oh, when I go towards this, when I eat this, when I do this, when I feed myself those thoughts or that food or I'm around those people, there's something either numbing or depressing or I feel smaller than I actually feel. Mm -hmm. What do I move towards because it feeds the life force? And then it's mm. then eating and what you eat becomes a much easier decision to make. You gravitate towards that. And in the process, you learn so much about yourself because you're really paying attention and you're honoring and cherishing the being that you are and the, the truth of that. So yeah. Ugh, preach. So, that's I mean, I have a question for you. Yeah. If you look at, for example, the recent research on sugar, which is in so, you know, it's in everything, and I'm not a food Nazi in any way, but that research on sugar is frightening, what it does to the brain. And when I had food issues, and I can say I don't because I've been, my doctor found out I had a lot of food allergies and put me on an incredibly restricted diet like a year ago. And what amazed me, I was vegan, and suddenly she said, you need to just eat meat and nothing else. Yes. Like that's all <laughs> and so I went from yes. eating like Gandhi to eating like Beowulf overnight. And <laughs> it was very bizarre to me that I can wander through a house full of all these goodies. And I'm like, eh, I'm only supposed to eat meat and macadamia nuts. Okay. And I haven't <laughs> had the slightest, like I've never fallen off the way. And I was like a crime, wow. you know, starving binge, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, but right. Somehow, in the intervening years between getting put on this restrictive diet and being obsessed with food, something has settled in me. When I was in food, though, the people I identified with most weren't like fat people. It was heroin addicts because I sugar has a heroin-like effect on the brain. And I was addicted to food the way heroin addicts were addicted to heroin. I identified with drug addicts so deeply. I felt just like them. And yeah. I remember going to work. I used to go and coach at this methadone clinic in Phoenix. So I coach because I think if life coaching works for some people, it should work for a homeless heroin addict, right? So uh-huh. what I would say at the methadone clinic, which none of the other instructors would say, is I think you're supposed to feel the way you feel when you're in a heroin. You just have to find what makes you feel that way. And I, that's mm. kind of what I'm picking up from what you're saying. And here's the problem people always have. They can punish themselves until the cows come home. They cannot think of reward, except for food. That was my whole thing. Reward yourself with something else. Find something that gives you that feeling. And they just look at me like I'm speaking Urdu or something. They're just like, what what planet are you from? We don't have rewards. In fact, people Mm -hmm. came up to me after saying you need to reward yourself with things other than food. And they said, I'm sorry, I haven't been able to think of enough punishment. And I was like, mm-hmm. I've never said anything. People can think of punishment, but finding something that rewards that. And I love that in this messy, magnificent life because you do talk a lot about it. But for somebody who hasn't been there, they may not understand the intensity of the presence, the sense of presence and present moment awareness and all that stuff. 
can you help the folks out there try something today that will feel to them like heroin? (laughs) Well, yes and no. Because, and I think you said it so beautifully, Martha, when you said that before you realized or your doctor told you that what you needed to do was eat meat and not be a vegan, there is a sense of imbalance. And so you're always working against yourself, basically. And so you have to see that as sort of the ground here. I understand this really from personal experience because I have gone through many different kinds of diets myself, vegetarian, pescatarian, vegan, macrobiotic, just the whole thing. And found finally through the process of elimination and working with some fabulous medical people, what actually works for my body. And when I found what works for my body, there's no desire for sugar. There's no desire. Yeah, right. There's no desire. But until you realize, I think, What happens is that most people don't realize that what they're eating is making them feel like they need heroin right now because they're already sort of feeling sub-zero. And so they're they're, they're not feeling so good and they don't even realize that it's possible to feel better because if, for instance, they've been eating what they're intolerant of or allergic to or what doesn't agree with their body. I mean, you could have been eating a vegan diet for the rest of your life and never come to balance where you get to the point where you realize, oh, right, this is what it feels like to be me when I'm full out, have my energy, and not where I'm craving, craving, craving something because I don't feel so good and I need something to make me feel better because mm-hmm. I'm really yeah. not feeling good from moment to moment. Well said. And I think it has, it has everything to do with what you said about the low-level trance of panic. That's what I think they're trying to medicate away. And it's weird. It can come from eating the wrong food, and then you get in that self-reinforcing loop you're talking about. But you fix it in the mind, and then when someone tells you, try this food, there's nothing really left in the way. I think that's why it was suddenly so completely easy because I'd been working in the 20 years previous to that on my mind, right? Yeah, oh, right. right. When, somebody right. Came, when someone adjusted the food, I was like, wow, I'm having absolutely no response. It's so weird. I was obsessed with food for decades. It's yeah. Gone. yeah. It's so right. interesting. Okay, but, you know, as I say a lot, it's actually not about the food. It's never about the food. So when you say, I was obsessed with food for decades, there, yeah, and I was too. And it seemed like it was about food, but there's the two-prong level there. It was about Mm -hmm. food to the extent that what you were eating was not what your body needed. And so it was about food. So you kept on craving something that you weren't giving your body, so... On that level, it was about food. On the other level yeah. of it's not about the food is yeah, that what you, what you also just said. It's about your mind, working with your mind. How do you sit with discomfort? How do you disengage from, Martha, what you call the fury? 
I loved yeah. what you said about that, by the way, which was you. you turned to the opposite. I don't belong. Yeah. I do belong. I'm not enough. I'm more than enough. I love that. <laughs> so I call that the crazy ant in the attic. How do you mm-hmm. not believe that? How do you go to another neural pathway when that comes? Yeah. How do you work with your mind? Because it's that mind that says, like with Linda, I lost my beloved here yeah. suddenly, and now I am shattered with grief. Oh, now what? What Now what? Yeah. And so that's the part that I think doesn't have to do with food, where when people feel that, they turn to food and become even more yeah. obsessed with food. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I just wanted to go back to something that Martha was saying about the answer Please. to it is to get more. Yeah. And, oh, I got all these Harvard degrees. It didn't make me happy. So I know I'll get another Harvard degree. And <laughs> so, like that. And I think, and I say that to people all the time. And one of the reasons that I love using, and I see food now and the relationship with food now is just a pathway, is a doorway in. Because it could be anything. But because how we do anything is how we do everything, yeah. then any pathway in you take gets to what your core beliefs are. And what I often say to people who come to me and, you know, I really want to do what you're talking about, but let me just lose this other 10 pounds and then I'll do it. And then <laughs> there's the, okay, let's see if we can be current with what you already know that you don't want to know. And so mm-hmm. the question is, if you've already done that five times and it didn't make you happy, do you actually think it's going to make you happy again? Mm-hmm. And there's this way that we cut off, I think, from our own knowing, from our own truth, yeah. from our own guidance. Because yeah. being that then would mean we won't get to put our lives on hold We won't have something concrete to look forward to again. Okay, well, it didn't work the first five times, but maybe if I get another Harvard degree, I lose another 10, (laughs) then I'll finally be happy. And so it gives us something concrete to look forward to instead of just sitting with, okay, got it. It's not out there. Nothing that's out there is going to work on the in here level to do what I really, really am hungry for. You know what I think the experience is? I've never taken heroin, but what I think from what they tell me, there's a <laughs> Leonard Cohen song about he was meditating and watching these motes of dust in a stream of light, and then suddenly he disappeared into the dust. And mm. he felt this endless love until even the love itself was gone. And that experience where We think we need more, we need more, we need something concrete. And it's when everything concrete vanishes and there literally is an awareness of no thingness, that's Mm -hmm. the high. That's what I came was to run around and look for. I mean, it's just, it's so ironic that the very thing we think we need more. I had a friend who experienced something like that and now she runs around the world going, I need more less. Because, you know, like when everything material vanishes, this exquisiteness opens up inside the self or or in the no-self, in the no-selfness. And it's like, oh, that's what I was after. 
okay. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yes. And and that's what's here. And that's the amazing thing. That fabulous St. Francis of Assisi quote, what you're looking for is what is looking. I mean, it's been redone a Mm -hmm. thousand times by Zen people. and But to really get that is so radical. It's Mm. just so radical because it means it's right here, right now. And that's radical. And there's this shift and you look back at the other thing and you think none of that was actually real. And there's no, at that point, you've left your sanity behind. And I wrote a book about it and didn't even try to send it to a publisher. I was just like, no, I'm going to write what this feels like, and no one will believe me, so I'll make it a novel. Yeah, exactly. I believe you. I believe you, Melissa. Thank you. Well, yeah, you're, you're one of us crazy people running through the woods going, oh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. Is to find out that everything you thought was going to do it, didn't do it, won't do it, will never do it. And what does do it is right here. And it's so Mm -hmm. much better. It's that magic. It's the wonder. It's the spaciousness. It's the freedom. It's what you said in the beginning, which was true nature. I think you called it true nature. Did you call it true nature? Yeah, there's truth and there's nature. I wrote that in a book, and my last editor at Simon & Schuster kept saying, but I don't understand, what is true, there's no, what's a true nature, for God's sake? It's hard to get at that. Well, you know, yeah. Martha, like, I, think you do, I think you do so well at putting the ineffable into words. So, well, um, I think that about you. So, I think yeah. yours is so accessible and so succinct. I really admire that. I wonder if I should change the name of this show instead of Beautiful Writers. I could call it Literary Matchmaking. (laughs) So you write in your book about the coming apocalypse, and um, I'm firmly on board with that. You know, I sit around going, it's so warm here today. (laughs) Goodbye, cruel world. I mean, there has been doomsday prophets forever. It's one of the most popular themes in world literature, that the world is coming to an end, maybe because we all know we're going to die someday. I don't know. But now it looks like really, truly. I mean, the scientists that put guys on the moon and could actually predict it are telling us, basically, we're round the bend. We're on a bus headed to the edge of a cliff. And if we implement all the measures we possibly can to reverse global warming and all the rest of it, overpopulation, we will go off the cliff at 20 miles an hour instead of 80 miles an hour, but there's no way to stop, and the cliff is coming. So that's right. fun. That's super fun. So that's fun. And so there's that. <laughs> yeah, so there's that. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? So you write about it with a lot of clarity and in a way that I found very steadying and hopeful and yeah. comforting. So would you talk well, a little bit about that? And I got to add on to that because she says, you reference Ram Das, where you say that he stated that regardless of what happens, whether we sail into the new age or just head straight into Armageddon, our work is the same, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have wrestled with this so much. I have jumped sides so many times from absolutely convincing myself that unless I am entrenched in the doomsday prophets right now, David Suzuki and yeah. et al., 
that I am living in denial and I am Pollyanna. And then what starts happening when I am drenched in that is that I notice my heart sinking. I've gone through phases of intense grief and sorrow. And then there's a, oh, what the hell? Why do I even bother recycling anything? It's all coming to an end anyway. There's a sense of cynicism that I start feeling after the sorrow. And I have landed finally in, well, partly what Ram Dass said, which I love, to open our hearts and remember our shared humanity because we're all going to die anyway. And that's how it's yeah. going to go. And I think that's also the hardest part to get, that we can hear about death and my Buddhist teachers could drag me to graveyards and still <laughs> there was a sense of, yeah, but it's not me that's going to die. It's sort of everybody sure. else. And even when I had that anaphylactic shock that I wrote about where I did leave my body, I just couldn't believe that it was happening. It came so suddenly. It was happening during a CAT scan. And yeah. I just yeah. couldn't believe it. So the sense of death not being close to me is something that I have felt for a long time. but. Getting it that I'm going to die, I don't even think I still can get that, truthfully. But where I know that I can go is how do I live this moment now fully? Jane Goodall says, where there's life, there's hope. And Mm -hmm. she is not a pessimist. And God knows she has seen horrendous things and is still hopeful. And so... What I hope for, I'd say in the bottom line, what I hope for is that we're kind to each other, that Mm. I can not contract out of fear, but actually show up in my body for this moment, for this life in a full-hearted way and not let the thought of the future contract me and shut me down. And that's what I was finding that that was doing. I wrote in that piece, Waiting for the Apocalypse, that when I found out that Jesus was an apocalyptic, end of days kind of guy, it really cheered me up because that was (laughs) 2,500 years ago. And there have been so many. So I think the jury's out. I still think the jury's out. But whether it is or not, if we're going to die next week, or in six months, or in a year, then I don't want to miss a moment of it. Yeah, yeah. I just don't. Mm. I don't want to. I don't want to miss a moment of it. And so that feels like the best I can do on a day-to-day mm. level is remind myself that okay, it might be coming, but it's not here now. You know, there's an old Peanuts comic. I think it's with Linus putting his arm around Snoopy. And Linus is saying to Snoopy, Snoopy, we're all going to die someday. And Snoopy says, but not today. And, you know, (laughs) I feel like that. I feel, okay, David Suzuki might be right when he says that we're all in a car headed for a giant crash or a steel wall, I think he says. And we're all arguing about where we're going to sit. But you know what? If that's true, if we are headed 
for a steel wall, then I don't want to die until I'm dead. And, well, and then that the question to me is, is the most beautiful thing about your work and what I'm benefiting by having read some of your books in the last month is that I feel like I'm more present. I feel like I'm not numbing. I was numbing. Yeah. You know, I was so heartbroken yeah. over the loss of Mary that I preferred to be numb. And, yeah. and I'm not preferring that anymore. So I agree with you. Whether we're here long or short, I want to be here while I'm here. And I think another thing that's so great about this book is towards the end, you have the what's not wrong inventory. And I really encourage yeah. people to get this messy, magnificent life. And do your own what's not wrong inventory because the more you focus on the little and big beautiful things around you and within you, the less panic you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Well, the more objective you also become about what actions to take. Because what I find is that when you're cowering in fear, then you're not very centered in what to do next. What can I actually oh, do about it? then it becomes very unclear and confusing about the actions to take, what to do, where to go. I, you no, know, I was in so right. recently in January when there was that nuclear missile yes, mistake. you were there? Right. I was there. Wow. I was there. Holy crap. I, I wasn't actually there when it happened. We landed 10 minutes after they already found out it wasn't happening. But then because... Sort of like you, Martha, at the beginning when you said you want to know, well, how does everybody, the FedEx person feel about this? I went around interviewing <laughs> everybody about what yeah. they did and how they felt when they got that text alert. Everybody. Wow. The person yeah. at Target, the person at the grocery store, the waitress, the person who works at the hotel, everybody, people I met on the beach. And the range was amazing from We were scared. We jumped in the car. We took our dogs. We took our kids. We got our water and we headed for the mountains to we were terrified and crying and texting our families to we did look back on our lives. We noticed what, if anything, we regretted and we were quite present in this moment with the people we loved being with those people in that moment. So it was quite Mm. astonishing. To see, you know, what mm-hmm. happens when you do think you're going to die in 15 minutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to close with, at the end of your book, Janine, you're talking about paying attention to what remains. This is one of the tenets at the end. I want to read this because of how beautiful this is. You say, when you are not possessed by your thoughts and stop taking yourself to be what happens to you, the background becomes foreground. What was up is down, and the noticer, rather than the noticed, is revealed. It's better than chocolate, better than sex, better than the perfect pair of boots. It's what you wanted from getting those things, multiplied by a quadrillion. I could cry. Quadrillion. I mean, what a great word to end your book. (laughs) Bravo, sister. Bravo. Yay. Mm, what a pleasure to talk to the two of you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was so much fun. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor thank to meet you, Janine. Yes, I'm I glad I could be your much. literary soulmate hookup. Uh, thank you. Thanks for how much both of you give. And, mm, uh, thank you. Yeah. 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 
Thanks. Thank you, Linda. Thank you so much. Uh, Love you, Martha. See you on uh, Friday. And Janine, I hope to meet you in the flesh very soon. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Later. Bye, Bye. everyone. Thanks so much for listening, for sharing your priceless time with us. As we discussed at the start, Martha Beck and Liz Gilbert are teaching True Magic Together live next weekend and also in an online writing course called Write Into Light. You can get all the details at marthabeck.com. Janine is teaching a free video masterclass called Women, Weight, and Power, Releasing the Energy of Obsession. You can join with the purchase of her new book, This Messy, Magnificent Life, A Field Guide, over on janinerothbook.com. That's G-E-N-E-E-N-R-O-T-H book.com. As for the Time Debt eight-week course I mentioned in the middle of the show, it's called Time Debt, Reclaim Your Life, Live in Flow. The focus is on bending time in the age of distraction, and we're calling on all makers, dreamers, doers, who keep getting distracted and taken off course and want to stop sabotaging themselves. If that's you, go to timedebt.com to get our upcoming dates. If the show's been a source of magnificence for you in any way we would love to hear about it with a comment and a five-star review on itunes that's all for now love 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 everyone until next time right on